Hello and welcome back to The Beacon, a podcast produced by the Oxford International Relations Society. I am your host, Daniel Thompson, and this week I will be discussing corruption in South Africa. To take us through these topics, I will be talking to Dr. Andrew Fowle, a senior researcher at the Centre of Criminology in the University of Cape Town, Gareth Newham, head of the Governance, Crime and Justice Division at the Institute for Security Studies, and David Lewis, a former chairperson of the South African Competition Tribunal and the executive director of Corruption Watch, a platform for reporting and raising awareness of corruption based in South Africa. To begin with, I asked all three of them to provide a summary of what they saw as the key factors to highlight when considering corruption in South Africa. Gareth Newham began by discussing the relationship between the public sector and the private sector and the relationship between the state and the individual. Okay, well, I think I'll limit my comments to public sector corruption, uh, primarily because the extent to which the private sector can engage in activities that could be considered corruption uh, is really constrained by the extent to which the state is able to get on top of it, so investigate, prosecute. And if you have a problem with corruption within your public sector and the public sector itself is not able to address the corruption problem, that obviously provides the space for the private sector to engage more in corruption. So our starting point is that if you really want to reduce corruption in any given country, you really have to start with the state. Uh, It has the responsibility for enforcing the law, for developing policies and making sure that everybody behaves within the the, the legal frameworks, the policy frameworks. Uh, And if it can't do that, then of course uh, private enterprises will take advantage where they can, uh, and you always have a problem with corruption. And there's usually a a nexus between public sector corruption and private sector corruption um, when it comes to, for example, public tenders going out to private companies who then pay bribes to officials to get the tenders. In South Africa, in a nutshell, we uh, seem to be making some progress towards corruption in about sort of early 2000s until about the mid-2000s. There was a lot of work done by the Public Service Commission. They set minimum standards for government departments to have certain capacity to deal with corruption within the state. We had, uh, for example, uh, established about 12 or 13 different state agencies that have a mandate directly or indirectly to tackle corruption. Uh, Directly would be the South African Police Service, the National Prosecuting Authority. Uh, We have a special investigation unit. We had a special uh, unit within the police called the Director of Priority Crimes, uh, sorry, the Director of Priority Crimes Investigation, or the Hawks, uh, the South African Revenue Service, the Intelligence Services, all have very important roles to play dealing with corruption, to tackle corruption, to enforce the law, and so forth. However, I think we've seen a deterioration since about 2009, um, particularly because we have a situation in which the president of South Africa, shortly before he was appointed as president, was facing 780 criminal charges of fraud, corruption, racketeering, and money laundering, based on a long-standing relationship he had with uh, a so-called financial advisor, man who uh, was paying him money in order for him uh, to act in this man's business interests. That was Shabir Sheikh. We know this because Shabir Sheikh went through a trial, was eventually convicted on various counts of fraud and corruption. Uh, And so the evidence was very clear that he was in a corrupt relationship with our president. And we saw then that one of the first things that the president did in 2009 was to shut down our most effective anti-corruption agency, 
we had a unit within the National Prosecuting Authority uh, called the Scorpions. It was commonly known as that. And it was based on sort of a model in which prosecutors, analysts, and investigators worked together. They were independent because they were within the National Prosecuting Authority, which is protected by law. Its independence is clearly stipulated in our Constitution. They got young, enthusiastic uh, investigators and analysts who were trained internationally by the FBI, by Scotland Yard, and other agencies, and were very effective at being able to follow up and investigate high-level corruption. For example, they managed to uh, investigate and secure a conviction of our police chief at the time in 2010, Jackie Celebe, for corruption, which is very unheard of in many countries, that the chief of your national policing agency can be investigated and actually be brought to justice and find themselves facing a 15-year criminal prison sentence. They were the organization that managed to highlight that our president was involved in a long-standing corrupt relationship. And so when he became president, immediately shut them down. And since then, there have been a string of poor appointments of people within the criminal justice system. So we've had police chiefs appointed by the president who know nothing about policing. Um, Becky Tsele was an example. He followed Jackie Celebi and was eventually fired because he was involved in maladministration and allegations of corruption that were never investigated against him. We saw people patently unfit for office being appointed to head the National Director of Public Prosecutions. A man called Advocate Menzi Similani was found in a, in a parliamentary inquiry. He was giving evidence to have been dishonest. Uh, that was referred to the Public Service Commission who confirmed that he was dishonest under oath and was not fit to hold public office. And it was after that that the president decided to appoint him to the most powerful position in the National Prosecuting Authority. So you see this, and, this, and I can give you many examples, of the president making sure that he undermines the institutions that were set up to enforce the rule of law in South Africa because he himself is deeply implicated in a wide range of corrupt activity. More recently, uh, in the last few months, we've seen cabinet ministers and people close to, uh, well, very senior in the, in the African National Congress, coming forward and saying that close personal friends of the president have offered them cabinet positions. Our uh, constitution only allows the president to make those appointments, and therefore it, the evidence at the moment that's been reported on uh, strongly suggests that our president has been appointing people to cabinet in key positions because they would act in the private business interests of this family called the Guptas, who in response will then channel money through to President Zuma's private heir or his family. So, for example, they hire his son. His son is now a multimillionaire because of business interest. So the nexus between politics and corruption and business at the highest level of government has profoundly weakened the ability of the state to fight corruption. Um, Today we will hear about whether the National Prosecuting Authority will proceed in, in prosecuting President Zuma on those uh, hundreds of criminal, uh, criminal charges because the decision to withdraw the charges in 2009 uh, was found to be rational. Um, and if the National Prosecuting Authority doesn't appeal, uh, then they should prosecute him on those charges. However. Uh, as I say, the current National Director of Public Prosecutions, a man called Sean Abrahams, was sort of catapulted from a relatively mid-level or so low senior level position into the head of that uh, prosecuting authority and within a few weeks immediately withdrew criminal charges against one of the deputy national public prosecutors who's got, uh, who had repeatedly in various matters has been found by court, three different uh, 
court rulings to be a person of dishonesty who lacks integrity and whose standards of decision making far fall far short of what's required of a person in the public prosecuting authority. So we do not expect the NPA to prosecute the president. We expect a unanimous judgment of a full bench of judges, um, which will yet to be another example of how, because we've got people who are very corrupt at the most highest levels of government, the highest parts of the ruling African National Party, it's very difficult for those in the system and those within the police and those institutions I mentioned to actually have much of a debt. So 70, uh, well over three quarters of South Africans believe, according to our latest National Victims of Crime Survey, that corruption has gotten worse in South Africa over the last three years. And it's largely been driven by a, a profound lack of accountability of those connected to the president and in powerful political positions for being held accountable for when they are caught or allegations of them being involved in corruption, they're not properly investigated or brought to book. And so therefore, um, and then I can give you lots of stats and figures, but for example, 80% of public officials who are found guilty uh, of financial misconduct are not fired. They're allowed to keep their jobs. So the message is that you can try and be corrupt, you can try and skim money off for, you, for yourself if you, if, you found, if you found out and you are subject to an internal disciplinary inquiry, most likely the outcome, 80% of the chances you'll keep your job. Mm. So very low levels of accountability uh, for corruption. I think 0.01% of public servants are actually ever held accountable for allegations of financial impropriety against them. If you look at the uh, poultry, it's about 200 odd cases in the last two years of public officials, of which there are around 2 million, have been held accountable for corruption. South Africa right now is not in a good state when it comes to ensuring that we have integrity in our public institutions, that you are held accountable for being involved in corruption, and that obviously then provides a lot of space um, and incentives for those who are not honest to try and misuse their positions, whether they different levels of the government, to try and act uh, to, to improve their own financial situation at the expense of state resources. I asked Andrew Fowle what he saw as the main causes of corruption within South African policing and whether the examples of corruption within the higher levels of South African government played any role in such corruption. Uh, I must also apologise for the poor quality of the sound recording. I guess if you're asking whether... I don't think there's a direct link. Um, I don't think cops on the ground wake up in the morning and say, I don't trust the government, therefore I'm going to go and abuse my power. But I do think that there have for many years now been uh, worrying accusations against senior police leadership and that those have resulted in a lack of trust and faith and morale amongst many street-level police officials. So um, the former National Commissioner three national commissioners ago, the national commissioner was convicted. The replacement was um, found to have uh, misadministered money that wasn't criminally charged. And then his replacement was accused of lying to a commission of inquiry looking into police killing mine workers. Um, so there is a, a challenge of integrity within the South African Police Service, which stretches out through over the past 14 odd years. And I think having that kind of stretch of of uh, a dark cloud hanging over senior management does affect the attitudes of people on the ground. I don't think it necessarily leads people to to by itself to to engage in corrupt acts. Um, I do think, however, that um, as I said, trust in police is waning, 
um, including within the South African Police Service. So in my work, I've I've written about how there's a culture of deceit in the organisation, and that that includes um, officials lying or presenting false performances to the public, but also lying to one another. And as a result of this culture of deceit, police officials don't trust one another. So you'll find somebody having heard a rumour about his or her um, conducting criminal activities, but they won't probe it. The, the instinct is to, to shy away from scandal and to hold on to one's job and not get involved in anything and not try and ruffle any feathers. In part a result of the precarious nature of life in South Africa. Once you have a job in the South African Police Service, you have one of the few jobs for life that still exist in modern economy, the South African economy, and the same in many other countries. Um, and as a result, holding on to that job is hugely important. And um, unfortunately, as a result, I think that importance means where people are involved in criminality and corruption, they are often left to their own devices and left to get on with things. Um, <clears throat> one of the stations I spent three months at shadowing police officers recently had officers arrested for robbing a business while on duty in police uniform and in a police car. So that is really bizarre and very extreme. It isn't corruption, but it is criminal abuse of power. And in a bizarre twist, the, I think their arrogance, their confidence in being able to rob a business while in police uniform is on the back of other trends from time to time when people have, who are not police officers get hold of police uniforms and then commit crimes pretending to be police officers. So these guys who were police officers thought, okay, well, no one's going to think we're really police officers because they're these just going to do it. Um, and that kind of brazen arrogance and and belief that one can do something like that while on duty is very concerning. But as concerning is that police officials are no longer surprised when they hear of such stories because people are aware of rumours of dirty things happening, but nobody wants to follow them up, really. Mm. Of course, there are people who will always say, yes, we're following up, yes, we are prosecuting, yes, we are disciplining people. But... Um, as the police corruption literature says, you can never, the rotten apple metaphor doesn't explain police corruption. It is the, the barrel or the organization that makes them in part part of the barrel rut in South Africa is this, um, this need for job security and as such the uh, lack of interest in, in inquiring when one has suspicions. Connected to the discussion of corruption within law enforcement and the government, David Lewis provided an outlook on the benefits and methods of tackling lower-level corruption through greater awareness and accountability and the use of the media. You know, we've been going for the last uh, four and a bit years, and, uh, and, what, and what we, we do is we, we try and mobilize public participation in, in combating corruption and... Uh, and uh, the principal form in which we, we in which we do this is by encouraging people to report uh, experiences and knowledge of corruption to us, and then we engage with those reports in a variety of ways. Uh, we're trying to derive as much of our work as possible from the, if you like, the intelligence and the legitimacy that we gain from 
from these reports from the from the public. And so, uh, you know, some of the reports, a very small proportion of them are, are investigated and, you know, handed over to one or other authority or used to confront one or other authority with we, uh, we you know, I did, we constantly analyze the reports and we, we average about a, at the moment we're averaging about 120 reports a week. So we, we, we pattern, we, we identify patterns and hot spots of corruption and those are often used to guide us in the direction of particular campaigns where we see reports particularly prevalent in one geography or around one issue or in, in one or other sector. And, you know, the key thing about those kinds of activities is that we constantly report back not only to the reporters, but to the public through a very active media and communications program where we use our own media a lot, our, our website and our, our social media platforms, which are very extensively trafficked and, uh, and uh, you know, widely disseminated. But we also have a very active relationship with commercial media, community media, with radio, with television, with uh, print, online media, and, uh, and, and so we are constantly engaged in this, if you like, two-way communication with the public where they report their experiences of corruption to us. And we engage back, as I say, both with the reporters and with the public. I mean, we also do a lot of litigation, strategic impact litigation work and uh, policy advocacy work, you know, which may involve making submissions to parliamentary committees or engaging in workshops with government officials or business organizations or you know, other uh, civil society organizations. And again, those activities are, are constantly reported back to the, the public. Um, and, uh, and that's really what we do. So it's, you know, it's like a communications unit that is, uh, that is surrounded by a small team of lawyers, data analysts, researchers, uh, policy wonks, and, uh, and, uh, and that's, that's who we are. I mean, um, and, you know, we've quite successfully in the last four years developed a very high public profile and I think have you know, contributed to the to the fact that uh, corruption is probably the number one public discussion in South Africa and has been for a little while now. I mean the the corruption problems I mean are are, are vast and, and wide ranging. Um, yeah. I think they're, they're very significantly caused by you know, firstly great problems including corruption problems in our law enforcement agencies and great uh, displays of impunity by people politically well connected and uh, economically well resourced and um, and you know those are, are serious problems but uh, there are also a lot of problems in the misleadingly referred to area of petty corruption where people experience, ordinary people experience 
traffic cops and public hospitals and public schools and licensing vehicle and driver licensing facilities and housing allocation as being very corrupt. And so the corruption happens at, if you like, at two ends of the spectrum. There's uh, the big procurement corruption and, uh, and uh, patronage that happens, if you like, at high levels. But this is repli and this is replicated through the political system, both at national government as well as the second tier, provincial government, and very prevalently at the third tier, which is local government, as the, if you like, one end of the spectrum where, where, where a lot of uh, so-called grand corruption occurs. But then at the other end of the spectrum, there is the sort of day-to-day -day petty corruption that I think mobilizes actually a lot of people and that we can focus on because it's kind of like human interest dimension and the sums of money in any single recorded case may not be huge but the human interest and that's the place where people make up their minds about the quality of their government as it were, and often the quality of their private sector so you know that's not a very articulate explanation of what we do but that's what we do and that's what i think the problems are Following on from David Lewis's points, Gareth Newham discussed some of the difficulties associated with creating awareness of corruption in South Africa, and the reasons why high-level government officials can sometimes get away with serious levels of corruption. Yeah, I think one thing to understand is also that um, you would not really know about the details of the president's private home and his corrupt relationship or allegedly corrupt relationship with people such as the Guptas and others and his family members. Um, unless you read independent newspapers, um, you would not, for example, get much detail from the South African Broadcasting Corporation. The man that heads that um, had, did not finish high school and then he lied about having a, 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 a matric, uh, which the public protector found that he was dishonest, uh, committed fraud, he regularly himself uh, increased his salary by doubling it in a year and that was good enough for, for, for the ANC to make sure he controls the main source of news in South Africa. So only about one in five adult South Africans actually read newspapers and a majority of those read what's called the Daily Sun which is very really tabloidy and doesn't go into a lot of detail about corruption scams. Um, the public broadcaster very rarely mentions these issues or goes into any detail. So people don't really get a sense of how damaging this is or what it actually means. Most South Africans. 53% uh, of South Africans are poor. They're living on less than 800 rand uh, a month, which is sort of, I don't know, less, less than, it's about 50, 60 pounds a month. They don't buy and read newspapers. They get their news from the public broadcaster, which tells them very little. Um, so the political ramifications of that kind of corruption probably isn't as severe as it would in a more developed country with a higher middle class, people who actually read the news, understand the damage that that kind of high-level corruption does ultimately to the ability for the state to solve economic problems, to provide social grants, to improve health and education. So people are aware there's a problem and certainly the president's popularity has uh, declined quite substantially. The overall perception of his office being involved in corruption has doubled since about 2009. Um, but in South Africa, the political situation is that people vote for a party. 
we don't vote for the president, we don't vote for specific politicians. What uh, President Zuma did when he took power in 2009 was immediately start um, ensuring that the National Executive Committee of the African National Congress, it consists of 84 people, who make decisions and should hold the president uh, accountable. He packed them with his supporters and gave them about 60 to 70% of them um, were appointed by the president into ministerial positions or onto the boards of state enterprises and had access to a lot of tender and ability to shape uh, tender processes. And so he ensured that he created a, 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 a structure that could not hold him accountable because their economic futures and, and, and well-being were tied directly to his. And you had the minister, for example, of social development, Babitele. Uh, she's also the head of the ANC Women's League, saying, we, you know, we mustn't talk about corruption and stuff in public because all of us have skeletons in the closet. She herself was saying this. Um, so he very skillfully ensured that he captured the ANC in a way that those who wanted to move up in the, in the world uh, would be personally loyal to him because to fight against him. So he's, he's got the ANC and the, and the, in, a, in, a, in a double bind. They're losing massive support. We see an ongoing reduction in ter uh, people turning out for elections. Um, one in three people who can vote in South Africa actually vote for the African National Congress and a few for the other parties. So they still have about 60% of the vote, but they are going to probably see a third election in a row where they lose support, but not too below a majority. And he controls the ANC, so they can't really do very much. They're in a bit of a, a stalemate around this. And so very little is likely to happen until the end of next year, December 2017, when Jacob Zuma may step down. He will no longer be the African National Congress president. He might try and use his power in the meantime to get a proxy, somebody who won't prosecute him, somebody who's also corrupt, um, to keep the patronage networks in place. And so that's the one outcome. Another outcome, of course, is that um, the ANC does so badly in the upcoming local government elections, and there's a real chance of them losing some of the provinces in the 2019 elections that it shifts the balance of power and the reformers in the ANC who are a minority at the moment um, are able to get ascendancy and try and uh, push policies that grow the economy and strengthen the rule of law and strengthen institutions. So those are the two outcomes. We don't know which way it's going to go. But for the ordinary South African, they still see the African National Congress as the party that liberated them from apartheid. They still think of Nelson Mandela, Walter Sisulu, uh, the greats of the, of, the, of, the, of the history of the ANC. And of, although that's declining, we don't see any big shifts to, to, to change the political dynamic enough uh, in the near future to address something as profoundly problematic as corruption. And that's all we have time for this week. If you'd like to hear more on the subject of corruption in South Africa, I'd recommend listening to the full interviews, links to which are in the description below. There was a lot more to say than could be packed into half an hour. If you'd like to share your thoughts on this or any other subject, the International Relations Society is always accepting submissions to the blog at oxirsoc.com. If you'd like to hear more on the subject of international relations, you can always sign up to the daily news bulletin on our website. Thank you so much to our guests and to our sponsors, Morgan Stanley and podcastteams.com for the intro and outro music.